Welcome to Off Hours, a conversation between John Edwards and Chris Manning. Around this time last year, we touched on Broadsham's new chronometer that they they released, the Double Impulse Chronometer, one of their first wristwatches in a couple of decades, and their very first wristwatch with a movement that was made wholly in-house. And uh, just recently, Magnus Boss wrote uh, another piece uh, digging into the, the history and uh, the build-up to realizing this achievement. And uh, so a worthwhile read. And one of the things that stood out to me from it was the uh, prototype dating from 2005. And it was a sort of a proof of concept of them getting the Daniels double impulse escapement operating in a wristwatch size. On top of this being a, an impressive technical achievement, the uh, other thing that impresses me a lot about this is the dial. This is a mm. gorgeous enamel dial and is perfectly executed. Uh, along with the incredible enamel work, there's also some beautiful applied numerals on this as well, which have been uh, masterfully created. It, it's It's a remarkable watch and... Uh, regardless of whether you're just looking at it from the face of it and just seeing the outside of this watch, or if you're actually digging into it and looking at the movement itself, it it is a remarkable piece of work. In terms of typefaces, those numerals from that Acrivia piece you were bringing up last episode as, as being one of the inspirational pieces for you mm-hmm. have really stuck with me since we spoke about it. And I did a little digging in the closest font I could find, although it's not a perfect match, is uh, something called Aviano. And this appears to perhaps be uh, a typeface that Recep has made entirely himself, or perhaps had someone make for him as a a commission. Uh, But I've not been able to find anything else quite like it that nails each and every one of those serifs quite the same way. But Aviano is a close fit. Now, the nice thing when you're dealing with uh, mostly numbers in this case is that it doesn't take a lot of work to modify an existing font and turn it into something that's a little bit more customized. I've been looking at doing that for some of my work. I'm using a, uh, as I mentioned, I'm using a a Rennie Macintosh font or a Rennie Macintosh inspired font, I should say. And there's a few changes that I've made to it to uh, make it a a little bit uh, better for the application that I'm working on. So the, again, it's not difficult to make little tweaks here and there uh, in a case like this. I It is very close, and I wouldn't be surprised if it is uh, is what he's chosen to use as the base uh, typeface, and then just uh, made a few little changes to it. But it is gorgeous. I, I have to agree, these numbers are one of the things that really stand out for me. And the other thing, too, with those numerals was just the quality of the bluing on them. It's really unreal. Uh, I've not mm-hmm. seen anything like that that's been hand-blued. So I don't know if he's hand-bluing those and having a lot of rejected pieces or whether more than likely uh, the way I would approach trying to nail that level of consistency would be to blue them in a kiln under very controlled temperature. I don't know how many rejects he's going to have. And frankly, it's not too difficult to refinish these if if something does get rejected 
the amount of work that would be involved in actually making the numeral itself would probably make it feasible to clean off the bluing and redo it if uh, if something happened to it. But I, I agree, trying to do this by hand and getting the consistent level of bluing that he's doing by hand it would be remarkable and extremely challenging. Uh, these numbers are all matching perfectly, so I can't imagine that he is doing them all uh, all by hand. Having done a, a fair bit of hand bluing and, and having had situations where it needs to be polished up and, and redone because the, the hue wasn't quite consistent enough, I would say it would be fairly non-trivial to have to redo these, uh, particularly when you think about the consistency of the height across of all of the numerals. And then, of course, you also have all those sides and the, the very fine serifs in a number of places. So it, having to polish that off and, and redo it even just once, let alone, say, two or three times to try and get that, that consistency, it would be noticeable. Um, so I think you're, you'd be in a position where you'd either end up with a lot of rejects or, again, the path of least resistance here would be to blue these in a kiln. The other way of dealing with that as well is you can do them in uh, larger batches and mix and match so that the mm -hmm. ones that you're putting together onto a dial end up matching each other. I know I've certainly done that with uh, stones in the past where you've got um, you want to match colors of stones. Uh, I've done that with some enamels as well, where you're trying to match a particular blue, for instance. And with with enamel work, the thickness of the enamel uh, dictates the uh, sort of the intensity of that of that color, and, and just how how deep that color is. And very very small differences, uh, very very small variances in thickness end up having a significant impact on the color. So uh, one of the things I've done is I've made up, let's say, five or six of a particular color, and that way I can sort of mix and match the ones that uh, that work best together. So that may also be what he's doing here, is using a combination of kiln work to keep the consistency high and then uh, mixing and matching so that they're, they're the exact right uh, match for each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that would certainly be the, the path I would take. And as a point of comparison, we'll, we'll add a photo to the show notes. That was a, a press photo that Roger Smith sent around around the time that he announced the, the Great Britain watch, which is another watch we, we touched on last episode. And in those images, you can barely clearly see the, the variations in, in hue across each of the numerals and on the numerals themselves. And those are very clearly hand-blued. And... That also points out another area where Recep has taken a slightly different approach in that the blue he's using on this tourbillon is a slightly lighter than the, the deep dark blue that Roger was targeting. And it's a little bit easier to get a more consistent blue when you lean towards that end of the spectrum. The, the deep blue that Roger's hitting occurs immediately after ending up in the, the purple end of the spectrum when you're bluing steel. And in Roger's case, he tends to prefer going for more of the purple. If you look at his watches over the years, he tends to go to the purple end of the spectrum versus the blue end of the spectrum. 
Um, so it's it's not surprising to me that these are a little bit darker than what a lot of other people use in their bluing, just because he, he does seem to go for that that purple, and that makes his work stand out a little bit more from uh, from what other people are doing. It certainly provides a much nicer contrast against gold or, or brass, which essentially all of his movements are purple being the complementary color of, of yellow. Yeah, as you get into more of the indigo colors uh, after you get past the purple, th- those certainly work better, I think, on the silver than uh, than they would on a gold. Uh, and you're right, that purple definitely does uh, pop a lot better on a, on a gold color background. Now, we've been talking a little bit about bluing, but did you want to explain a little bit about the process of what's involved in in creating these blues? Because I, I don't think uh, like everybody quite realizes what's involved in this when we talk about the differences between hand bluing versus kiln bluing and and the different colors. What what exactly is this process? Mm, then of course you also have chemical bluing and, and straight up painting. Bluing is done for two reasons. One of them is very technical, and the other is more aesthetic. So in the case of hands and numerals like this, it's for purely aesthetic reasons. But when you are working with steel, when you're machining it, particularly when you're machining it by hand, you want to work with a soft steel, or at least a relatively soft steel. And then once you're done forming this steel component, you want something that's going to be more enduring and long-lasting, harder wearing. So you harden the steel, and that involves heating the steel up to a cherry red color and then quenching it in oil or water. After you do that, you get a very strong, very crystalline structure that forms within the steel. In the same way that diamond is very strong because of its crystalline structure, it's also very fragile. So if you hit a diamond in just the right way, it's going to leave very cleanly along an axis and crack in two. So the same thing will occur with hardened steel. If you have a, a hardened steel part, you can, if it's thin enough, literally break it in two with your bare hands. So you're getting something that's very, very hard, but also very brittle. Correct. So then to maintain many of its hard characteristics or a good portion of its hardness while introducing some flex or or some give so that it doesn't fracture under pressure, you then temper the steel. And tempering is a process of very gradually bringing the heat of the metal up, not to a cherry red, but just very slowly applying heat. And the goal is to bring it to just the right temperature for the level of temper that you desire. And visually, one way that you can gauge this if you're not tempering in, say, a kiln or something like that, is that the actual properties of the steel will be changing as the metal heats up. And there is a chemical reaction that will happen on the surface where an oxide layer builds up at varying degrees of temperature that will change the way that light is reflected off of the metal. So certain wavelengths will get caught up in the oxide layer and get scattered or absorbed in different ways so that you end up with uh, first a, a yellowish or straw sort of color and that will progress into almost a brown through to a purple 
and then this deep blue, and then you get more of a cornflower blue, and then on into a very, very pale blue. And that's just all a result of these oxide layers that are, that are being built up. And once you pass through a certain level of color or a particular oxide layer, there's no regressing. So that's why if you go past the deep blue into a, a cornflower blue or you end up with a mix of blue and purple, uh, you have to polish it back off if you want to get something that was slightly before that point in the process. Uh, we're going to include a chart in the show notes so you can take a look and see a, exactly what we're talking about with the different colors and the approximate temperatures that the metal needs to get to to form that oxide of that particular color. Traditionally, how would somebody blue these parts to to temper them? Traditionally, a watchmaker would use a, a pan that's filled with brass filings. And what you're essentially making is a heat sink. So you would heat that up over a flame. And when I do this, I will typically preheat it so that I've already got a, a fairly consistent, even temperature. You then place the, the part on this. And then another thing I do is I have the brass filings below the rim of the, for lack of a better term, we'll call it a pan that I'm using. And uh, this creates kind of a furnace effect where that you've got a pocket of air there that's going to be relatively the same temperature. And then you will move this pan over the flame, trying to distribute the heat as evenly as possible. Or in the case of having a part that is tapered or thin in one area versus another, you can focus the heat more on the, the heavier areas than on the thinner areas that are going to heat up faster. Uh, you try and get the, the bluing to be as consistent as possible. Because if you're to apply the heat to just one point on that pan, you're going to wind up bluing the part in more of a rainbow. So you end up with areas that are the straw colored, others that are violet, and then others that are the blues, which is undesirable from both a, a technical standpoint and also from the aesthetic side of things. I mean, there are certain cases, perhaps technically, where you would want a different temper on different areas of a piece when you're making a spring. But for the most part, you want the temper to be as even as possible over the entire piece. I think where people might have run into this technique before is watching knife makers making a knife. Because in those situations, you want to have uh, different levels of hardness and different tempers at different points in a blade. Mm. So typically you want the thin edge of a knife to be harder than, let's say, the spine of the blade, which needs to be softer uh, so that it can absorb shock and, um, and be able to provide some, some give so that when, um, when that blade hits something hard, the very sharp edge doesn't uh, doesn't get shattered uh, because it has a, a softer sort of a softer spine and then as you get down towards the tang you don't want the tang to be very very brittle in fact you want that to be very soft uh, so that again it doesn't snap on you as you're working with the uh, the knife and maybe applying more force into 
the tang than you should. Uh, so if you watch uh, YouTube videos or whatever of, of bladesmiths, you'll often see them doing a differential temper on a blade. And there you will see the different colors uh, that are associated with the different tempers coming out in different parts of the blade. But in the case of most watch parts, they're significantly smaller. And again, you typically want those parts to be all the same temper and or all the same color, if that's what you're going for. If this is an aesthetic reason, you want them all to be the same color. Uh, but I think for most of this stuff, even smaller springs, typically, from what I've seen, they they tend to be tempered all to the same level just to just because they're such small parts, trying to temper them at different levels would be extremely challenging on, on something that tiny, at least doing it intentionally. Yeah, and a slightly larger scale, a good example of what it is we're, we're talking about uh, was actually some clock hands that uh, there's a YouTube channel, Click Spring. A couple of years ago, he did a, a video showing how he blues his clock hands, uh, and he does a very good job going through the the entire process and you actually see one point where the, the very tip of one of the hands doesn't blue quite as consistently as the rest. So then he has to go back and repolish that and then, and re-blue it all over again. But uh, those hands that he created were, were beautiful, really well done and uh, a, a great walkthrough of what it's like to hand blue a component. So then with watches, you just got to scale it down a little bit. Chris's channel, Click, um, the ClickSpring channel, is excellent, and he he's doing a great job of showing in his first big project how to make a clock, and then in his current project how to make a replica of the Antikythera mechanism. And he does a great job of explaining how some of these techniques work, like bluing. Uh, and fortunately, he's doing it on a larger scale, so it's a bit easier to see what's going on. Uh, it takes a little bit longer for the bluing process to happen than it does on a very tiny watch part. And, um, and so it's, it's a great, a great resource to take a look and see what it is that's going on in these, uh, these cases. Uh, obviously in the case of watch parts, he's, he, the hands he's making are much larger than a watch hand would be. Uh, so it is a little bit different, but, um, it, it is an excellent channel and worth watching, even if you have no interest in ever making a clock or making a, a geared mechanism or anything, his videos are very, very well done and certainly worthwhile. Uh, watching just just from an interests point of view well the speed of bluing is very relative uh, it can take longer to <laughs> blue watch parts depending on your approach so very early watchmakers would have used well, essentially a small kerosene lamp on their bench uh, and following that process it takes quite a bit of time to, to actually blue a part uh, i believe chris uses uh, a blowtorch if i'm remembering correctly yeah, he's typically using a butane torch for that. Yeah, which would be quite a bit faster. And that's what I do myself when hand-blowing. I have a small torch that I use. And I've also experimented in the past with using a, a soldering iron that I had that I had a very fine temperature control on. And I use that to heat up a bed of brass shavings. And uh, it worked, but that was very slow. Uh, it actually, the first time I used it, took several hours to hit the the blue that I wanted. And uh, with some experimentation, I was able to speed it up by overshooting the temperature that I was aiming for. But then you run the risk of overshooting the blue that you're going for. And when it's taking as 
long as it is using that setup, you're not going to stick around watching the whole time. So I, I eventually gave up on that. Yeah, I think it's worth noting, though, that the difference between the, the techniques that you're describing there has a lot to do with the sort of the BTUs that you're putting into the part mm-hmm. um, versus the the actual temperature. That that soldering iron is not putting out a lot of BTUs, so it's going to take longer to get that thermal mass up to temperature and uh, and sort of keep it there, whereas the butane torch or the, the propane torch or whatever it is, even the kerosene lamp for for that matter, is is going to put out a lot more BTUs and will therefore uh, heat everything up faster. Uh, the big thing is that you're giving up, uh, as you say, the the fine control of temperature. Mm-hmm. Uh, the slower you can bring it up to temperature, um, the the more control you're going to have, and the longer you're going to have to react to the changing colors on the part as well. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so when working with a a torch, I will very quickly bring it up to a straw color, and I'll then draw my my pan up further from the flame providing some air gap there so it's not receiving as much of the heat and then bring it slowly up into the purples and then again draw even further from the heat source as i dial in the blue yeah when you're doing this by hand you're using uh, you're using your judgment and uh, the ability to control the distance from your your part to the uh, the heat source to to adjust that and that's where you're getting that variance in color on roger's part uh, he he's using his judgment as he's uh, as he's heating it to bring it a little closer and a little further away. Uh, this is similar to what you're going to experience if you end up doing any sort of hard soldering on jewelry uh, with silver solder. You you end up experiencing similar things uh, because you have to get the temperature balance right so that you're not overheating the part and you're not underheating it and letting the solder flow properly. Uh, similar problem when you're dealing with an, with niello. And you're applying that, you need to make sure that you get that balance of of temperature right. And this is where having that uh, that fine control of being able to move your heat source a little bit closer and further away from from the part makes a big difference, and certainly helps when it comes to uh, to getting the the color exactly right. But you also have the risk of going overboard and and going a little bit too far. Mm. Yeah, using a torch, it's surprising how quickly you can jump from that straw color to cornflower blue. Mm, absolutely. And it's certainly worthwhile having a large enough heat sink. Obviously, you don't want a too large of a heat sink because otherwise you're going to be spending all day trying to heat it up just like you were with that soldering iron. The The larger the heat sink, the, the more control you're going to have over that because it it is going to take longer to make changes in the temperature of that that larger thermal mass than something that's very very thin and that's why you don't tend to apply heat straight to the part itself these parts would just be too small uh, and and you would you'd never be able to judge the the temperature change uh, in the time it would take for them to go from being uh, you know let's say a faint straw to a, a black you know it would be fractions of a second you just wouldn't have time to change it yeah and you also then risk introducing a, a layer of carbon rather than that nice colorful oxide layer now it's also worth noting that this is really not related to time either we we talk about how much time it's taking to heat this into and to blue it but really this this oxide layer isn't uh the color isn't being affected by time is it yeah it's purely temperature 
Now, on a bluing note, have you seen any pictures of Elizabeth Tower as of late? Yeah, I saw going around on Twitter a couple of days ago, there was a photo of um, the Elizabeth Tower and some of the restoration work that's going on in there. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with the Elizabeth Tower, I think I mentioned this actually when I was uh, when I talked about my last trip to the UK. Uh, it was completely covered in scaffolding when I was there and uh, covered up. And uh, I think they've started revealing parts of the tower that they've managed to restore. And they've uh, revealed one of the faces of the clock. And it's absolutely fabulous what they've done with it so far. Mm -hmm. They're very striking, particularly compared to how it looked just prior to the restoration. Now, if these were made of steel and these were hand blued, this would be a ridiculous feat uh, of engineering. <laughs> so I've done a little digging. It turns out that they did some forensic work prior to this restoration, and they actually stripped away layers of paint that had been applied to Elizabeth Tower over the years. Listeners may be more familiar with this as Big Ben. Uh, Big Ben is the name of the bell in Elizabeth Tower. So we'll be using the proper nomenclature here. They are not painting the bell. They're painting the face of Elizabeth Tower. So there are four clock faces on this tower uh, in the UK Parliament. And back in the 80s, they applied a layer of black paint to the, the dial and the hands. As a part of this restoration, they've gone back to the original color, which was this beautiful blue that is very reminiscent of the sort of blue that you would get from blued steel. Yeah, this is a beautiful Prussian blue that's on here, and they've also been revitalizing the gold that's around it. I don't know if they're using gold leaf for this. I, I haven't dug into it enough to know what techniques they're using to uh, to revive the gold, although I suspect, if I had to guess, they probably are using gold to get this to pop the way that it is. And the combination is really striking. It's uh, it's an impressive impressive restoration they're doing. And in terms of size, uh, you're right. They have, I think the hour hand is close to 12 feet tall. It is absolutely fabulous. I, I'm looking forward to seeing these, seeing this in person. I think when I go over in May, I may have to stop in and uh, take a look and see if I can get a good photo of it because uh, and see it in person because it uh, it does look really really striking. This episode of Off Hours is brought to you by the Santa Fe Symposium. The Santa Fe Symposium is held annually in Albuquerque, New Mexico. It's the premier collaborative forum for jewelers and professionals in jewelry-related fields. Bench jewelers, manufacturers, lapidarists, metallurgists, casters, educators, and many more take part in this multifaceted event. The symposium was founded as a non-commercial, not-for-profit gathering for professionals willing to share their research, challenges, solutions, and innovations. By attending, you will come away with practical know-how you can put to use in your own work. Each year, 24 papers are presented across an exemplary range of jewelry-making endeavors. Attendees receive a copy of the Proceedings book, as well as a USB drive with the presentations. Attendees form new relationships, strengthen existing bonds, and build their professional networks with colleagues from around the world. The Santa Fe Symposium offers incredible benefits that last throughout the year, and benefits grow stronger each year you attend. Longtime listeners of the show will be familiar with some of the fascinating places I've visited over the past year, 
including tours of the Goldsmiths Company, Cookson's Gold, and Birmingham City University. All of these visits are thanks to relationships I've built from attending the Santa Fe Symposium. The Santa Fe Symposium is one of the few must-attend events of the year for me, and I hope you join me in Albuquerque this May. The 2019 Santa Fe Symposium will be held May 19th to the 22nd. Visit santafesymposium.org today for more information on the lineup of speakers and how to attend. We've spoken a number of times on past episodes about laminated metals, and specifically about Mokume Gane. Few people in the Western world know more about Mokume than James Binion. Fortunately, he's also a regular speaker at the symposium and has written a number of papers about Mokume. If you are interested in an introduction to Mokume, I recommend Jim's 2002 paper, Old Process, New Technology. In it, he gives a history of the origins of Mokume and how it made its way into Western metalworking. The balance of the paper discusses the processes of fabricating Mokume in a modern jewelry studio. You can find this and Jim's other papers, along with hundreds of others, at santafesymposium.org. Our thanks to the Santa Fe Symposium for sponsoring this episode of Off Hours. So Basil World has come and gone without a whole lot of fanfare this year. Yeah, it was a quiet year for for Basel in terms of the number of uh, people attending as well as the number of uh, exhibitors at Basel. It was, the Swatch Group pulled out as so a, a big hit to the fair. So I believe the numbers are something like there were about 1,500 exhibitors two years ago, and now they're down to just over 500. So quite a shift in the feel of the show. Yeah, there wasn't a lot that really jumped out at me this year. Uh, of course, as as always, the folks at the AHCI tend to be doing the work that uh, that interests me the most. The independent horologists uh, that that was certainly the most appealing work that was out there. Uh, although one of the interesting things that comes out of that, because of who those artists are, they tend to be sharing a lot of process photos online. So very little of that was sort of you know new and exciting to me because I'd I'd been seeing you know, dials in process and, you know, hands being made and things like that over, over the last couple of months. So it's less of a, you know, sudden reveal than it is of a, you know, sort of nice to see the whole thing together. Uh, so that was, that's a little bit different than, than what we tend to see from the bigger brands where all of a sudden it, something just appears fully formed. Yeah, it's the same for me. And most of the pieces that stood out for me were from DHCI and like you, I'd seen a lot of it in progress over the past year. So again, n- no huge, big reveals. One AHCI candidate that did jump out for me was Stefan Kudoke, uh, whose work I'd seen before, was, but not this particular piece. Uh, what I'd seen from him before were predominantly modified 6497, calibers that he had elaborately engraved to to show off things like an octopus and it looked like an octopus is eating the movement and he'd have the barrel arbor as the eye of the octopus and in some iterations actually has hands as tentacles Uh, but this year uh, he released something much more refined a very classic looking movement classic looking dial as well and the movement itself is based on 
a another movement made by another independent watchmaker who's also part of the AHCI. And that was watchmaker in, in plural, it's actually Habring Squared. So the the Habring duo who created the, the Felix Caliber a few years back. Uh, so Stefan has used a number of components from this caliber and developed his own caliber that is, is very accessibly priced. And he's done quite a quite a handsome job with it. Mm-hmm. Now this is both of these watches are are really attractive. I, I like what he's done with the dials. I like what he's done with the case, and the movement is is stunning looking. I am a big fan of his uh, choice of texture and his layout as as well with the uh, the movement. It's a it's a great looking watch. I've seen a couple of the um, the Habring watches in person, and I'm I'm a fan of those. Um, there's a there's one that I saw when I was in. Uh, the UK in September, uh, Matt, the watch nerd, had one of his with him. It was a jump seconds uh, watch that's uh, that's a lot of fun to look at. Uh, the, the that movement is is difficult to to sort of look away from it. It really catches your your eye. But again, really well built movements. They're they're gorgeous looking movements. I like what uh, Stefan has done here in terms of uh, modifying theirs. And then uh, adding his own little flair to it as well. He's not just taking, you know, taking it off the rack and throwing it into his watch. You know, so I like what he's done here. And uh, as you say, I'm I'm a little surprised at the price on these. They seem very reasonably priced compared to what what he's doing and the work that he's putting into it. Considering this is not a mass-produced movement that he's using in here, it's um, a little surprising the price on them. Like part of the way he's been able to achieve that is through the relatively simple movement architecture. So a movement like this is actually, in my opinion, a bit of a pain to work on because you've essentially got one giant bridge that you've got to get everything to to sit correctly under. And if you have to do any sort of troubleshooting, uh, you essentially have to take the whole watch apart every single time. And this is in stark contrast to something like Rolex's Caliber 3135, where if you have a, an issue with a certain area of the movement, you can zero in and focus on just that area of the movement without disturbing anything else. So this movement construction in terms of the machining time is quite a bit less expensive in, in terms of actually manufacturing it than would be if he had multiple bridges and, and different layers to the movement. Mind you, that said, he's done a, a really lovely job here with the, the balance cock. And uh, I, I like that, the way he's woven in the, the infinity motif there around the, the blued screws. And hats off to him too. These these blue screws are, are really well done. To do a flat polished blued screw with that level of consistency in the bluing, again, uh, requires a master's touch. Unless, of course, you're doing it with a kiln or chemical processes. But this appears to be hand blued to me just because there is some subtle variance between the blues of the various screws. Yeah, his choice of of colors, his choice of textures is fabulous. The um the frosting that he's using on the main plate is is excellent. And uh his applied cartouche that he where he has his his name in Germany on it. Uh all of it together is is great. Uh, as you say, I'm I'm glad that I'm not actually working on one because it would be a nightmare trying to get all these uh all these parts lined up as you're reassembling the watch, but um that's not likely to be a problem for me. 
and uh it the, the effect is is quite striking though when it comes to looking at it so omega strategically made a bit of a splash before and after SIHH and i haven't really found that they've done the same with basil they did announce a piece worth mentioning just before basil but i think they're now holding everything up until may when they they drop their big releases for the year uh but interestingly uh, they have announced their apollo 11 anniversary limited edition in solid gold and what i found interesting about this release is that they have indeed begun to do some of what i predicted they would likely do when they teased the reissue of their 321 caliber earlier this year and that is upgrading it with things like a free sprung balance wheel and completely anti-magnetic movement so what they've done here is taken the 861 caliber which is a caliber that is descendant from the 321 and is very popular and commonly used in many of their moon watches and the speedmasters over the years and has seen upgrades such as the 1861 and they have reconfigured the movement now and they call it the 3861 or 3861 and it is now equipped with a coaxial escapement a free sprung balance wheel and is meta certified so it's fully anti magnetic so it's uh, quite an upgrade to a tried and true caliber yeah, it's nice seeing this watch out there again. This is a uh, reissue of a gold watch that they put out for the Apollo 11 moon landing originally. Uh, so it is nice seeing this out here. This isn't really my style of Speedmaster. Uh, if I was going for Speedmaster, I'd, I'd look for something a little uh, little more understated than this. But uh, the, as you say, the caliber is interesting, and it's uh, nice to see them putting that 861 into use in a, in a, in a newer watch. Yeah, it's solid gold. Speedmaster isn't quite something I could rock on the daily either. And it's not quite to my taste. I would also prefer something a little more understated. Uh, we just have to hold our breath and see what they have in store for us in a few months' time. Yeah, the other bit of uh, news that's come out of Basel, which is a little bit interesting and, and a bit surprising, came from an article Michael Stockton wrote on Fratello. And it was about his experience going through Swiss Customs on the way to Basel World 2019. Uh, he was stopped by uh, the uh, Swiss border guards when they found out that he was going to Basel. Um, they asked to search his bags, and they ended up um, fining him. They, uh, they claimed that he was bringing in watches for commercial purposes to sell them. Uh, he claims that there is personal watches. And uh, they ended up fining him as well as charging him VAT on the watches that he was carrying. It was a little surprising to me because it's um, typically when you're traveling like this, you don't expect to be paying a, uh, a sort of a duty or uh, a tax on your personal items. And uh, I was a little bit surprised to, uh, to see that uh, he was being treated this way. And from what I understand, he's not the only one who was stopped i don't i haven't heard of anybody else being fined like this but he certainly wasn't the only person who was stopped by uh swiss border 
and customs when uh, they found out that he was going to Basel or they were going to Basel. It didn't come particularly surprising to me uh, just because I've heard plenty of other stories over the years and certainly advised a number of collectors to make sure they have the proper paperwork on them when they're bringing their watches across international borders, simply because watches are relatively liquid assets. They are certainly tangible assets, and I've heard of some pretty wild stories of what people have been able to do by bringing watches across borders in terms of what they've been able to flip them for. Uh, so I can see both sides of the situation here, both the, from the, the sides of the customs agencies and also from the side of the person owning the pieces being surprised. But if I may reframe the situation a little bit, uh, these vintage watches, in terms of their price points, maybe not in this particular case, it's, it's as relevant, but watches certainly occupy a similar gamut of price that fine cars do, or just cars in general. So if you were to, say, swap these watches out for a, a trailer of cars, suddenly the situation doesn't seem that unreasonable. And from a monetary standpoint, it there's some comparison there. Yeah, I think that that's a, a bit of a straw man because it's not uncommon for people to travel with personal items like this. And it would be very uncommon for people to travel with multiple cars. You can't drive, uh, you know, you're not likely to drive multiple cars over the course of a, a, a vacation, whereas it's not uncommon for people to wear a couple of different watches over the course of a vacation. And particularly if you're going to a watch show, uh, again, it wouldn't be, un, it's not uncommon for people to have a couple of different watches with them. Uh, I know this is something that I've had to deal with a little bit, both from a commercial point of view and from a personal point of view, uh, because when I travel, I often travel with a considerable value in terms of the items that I have. Uh, I usually have a few watches with me, a few pens with me, uh, you know, things like my MacBook, my iPad, my phone, my camera. It, you know, certainly by the time it's all said and done, uh, it's not uncommon for me to have fifteen, twenty thousand $20,000 worth of items on me. And I certainly wouldn't expect, you know, to be taxed like this on those items because they are, you know, my personal items, even though they do represent a significant amount of value. Uh, so it's, it's a little bit surprising. Uh, the other thing that I have a problem with here is that there are ways that are commonly accepted to deal with bringing high value items into a country and protecting against them being sold inside of the country. Uh, the, the most common way of dealing with that is through a carny. Uh, that's something that um, I've had to deal with before. And it's something that, uh, again, is common with, you know, if you talk to photographers, commercial photographers or uh, commercial cinematographers when they're traveling into countries and they're bringing tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of camera gear into countries, uh, something like a carny is a very common way for countries to deal with that, uh, to ensure that the equipment isn't being sold in country and that uh, they are, in fact, leaving with it. So that there are better ways of dealing with this than what uh, the Swiss did. And um, and it's unfortunate that they've done this. You know, it's going to create a chilling effect on people who are traveling there. And um, it's something that their economy probably can't handle right now because their, their economy is not doing great at the moment. 
I suppose it doesn't strike me as unusual because it's certainly not the first story I've heard like this. I mean, it's the first time I've seen it published on a a relatively notable watch publication, but it's far from the first time I've I've heard of people being charged tax on their personal watch. And this is part of the reason that I advise clients that, that I deal with to make sure that they have their, their paperwork with them and, and in good order for their pieces when they're traveling internationally. Well, I know as a contrast, uh, a friend of mine just returned from visiting family in Switzerland, and he's been traveling there for 20 odd years. And he said that, um, that the attitude of the Swiss border guards was definitely different this trip than it has been at any other time that he's been there. Uh, it was the first time, for instance, that he's been stopped going into the country and that they ended up searching his bags. Now, he wasn't going for Basel. In fact, he, he arrived weeks before Basel started and they weren't specifically looking for watches in his case. But um, yeah, he, he said this was there was a definite shift in the attitude of uh, customs and, and border uh, in Switzerland. So uh, there is something that's definitely changed in the way that they're uh, they're treating people coming into the country. And while you're right, I've, I have heard of stories in the past of this happening. Uh, it seems to be more common that people are being stopped and, and questioned uh, once they found out that they were going into Basel World. So um, certainly something different and something to keep a, keep your eye on if you are traveling with more expensive items. Uh, make sure that you're that um, you have proof that you've you, that you own them. And um, uh, again, there are ways that you can protect yourself and make sure that you're that you're leaving with the item that uh, that you went in with and uh, proving that to the, uh, you know, to the country that you're going into. Yeah, an area I have more familiarity with is crossing the, the U.S.-Canada border. And for that, just simply making sure that you have your E311 form all filled out properly and also carrying your guarantee card or proof of purchase for the piece and with the date on it as to when you, you purchased it will help make things a lot easier getting across the border. And then shipping watches across borders for service restoration, that sort of thing, is another area of far more expertise in than I, I care to admit to. But again, there, as long as you're crossing all your T's, dotting all your I's, everything generally goes fairly smoothly. I, I still get the odd call just because someone's going through the paperwork too quickly, but everything's always there in a good order and, and don't really have an issue getting things through customs. But uh, it, it certainly tends to be more more of a pain and, and drain on resources and, and time than I, I personally care for. Yeah, agreed. I've um, I've run into enough problems as a commercial seller trying to cross the, the Canada-U.S. border. And it's one of the reasons why I'm selling a lot less now in the U.S. because that's, uh, that process has become a significantly more challenging getting into the U.S. over the last few years. Uh, so it's something that I've been avoiding and not bringing commercial goods with me down into the U.S. anymore. All of that said, I I do feel sorry for for Michael and that this transpired and, and cost him as much money as it did and that it will be as much of a pain as it would be to get this money back. Uh, this is a really unfortunate circumstance and uh, it, it is sad that the Swiss border agents came down on him as hard as they did. Uh, but I imagine in the future, he will take the necessary precautions to ensure that something like this doesn't happen to him again, even if that means he's only traveling with 
one piece and ensuring that he has all the, the necessary paperwork in place for that. But I, I really do feel bad for him that this happened. Our thanks again to the Santa Fe Symposium for sponsoring this episode of Off Hours. Please visit santafesymposium.org for more information. Thanks for listening to Off Hours. You can find detailed show notes at offhours.show. If you'd like to keep up to date with the show, follow us on Twitter at Off Hours. John can be found on Twitter at Under the Loop, and Chris can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Silver underscore Hand.